Hello, hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today we have Frederick Dubu from Bing, as well as Max Prin from Merkel. Max, would you like to give an introduction of yourself first? Sure. Thanks, Alexis. My name is Max Prin. I lead the technical SEO team here at Merkel, and we focus on the most technical aspect of SEO, such as structured data and crawling and indexing. And then Frédéric. Hi, I'm Frédéric Dubu. I'm part of the web ranking and quality team here at Bing with a specific focus on anti-spam, anti-malware, all the bad stuff we see on the internet. Awesome. And one of the things I found during my research of you, Frédéric, is that you speak five different languages. How did that even happen? Um, well, I, I, I don't speak them very well, and really, I, I'm <laughs> probably professionally in French and English. And then they say practice makes perfect, and for language, I think like uh, the lack of practice makes you forget very, very fast. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, in, in France, and, and Max went through the same system, I, I believe, and you have to start uh, studying foreign language when you are like 10 or 11 or so, and you have to study like seven or nine years of language. So, and you have to see two of them. So I picked English and Spanish. That's why these two. And then I was super interested in, in Japan in general. So I learned a little bit of Japanese, lived there a little while. And then I started to work for Microsoft in Zurich. So I had to pick up a little bit of German. And here are your five languages. Wow. So we could do this podcast in like totally in French, probably with you and Max. And I would just listen in. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Exactement. Le reste du podcast en français. Yeah, well, it depends because after several years living in the U.S., you you, you forget your French, so. <laughs> especially the technical words. <laughs> that's very hard for me. Exactly. I imagine that's so true. Oh gosh, I could actually. I have actually a hard time like uh, talking about SEO in French. So <laughs> everything is in English. Really? Is it just some of the words are different? Yeah, everything, all the key terms, everything is in English. So. Mm-mm-mm. That's so interesting and fascinating. Awesome. Okay. So if we dive into some of the meat of the podcast, one of the things that I've been seeing you speak on the circuit a lot, and of course, thank you so much because it's so fascinating. But one of the things that I've been noticing is that Google and Bing as well, especially you, have been integrating more in with the search community, which is awesome to see. And one of the things from the SEO perspective that I'm really interested in is what can we as SEOs do to support Bing? Yeah, that's a great question. I, in general, the reason why we want to interact with the community is that they, they keep us honest uh, in the sense that we know the product we want to build. We, we, we think we know how it's working. And then you, you, you chat like 10 minutes with SEOs and they tell you exactly, no, 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 no. This, this spam technique you thought you, you eliminated, it actually works great. Uh, or these kind of things. Uh, so for us, it's really enlightening. So any any feedback the community has, it, it's definitely the best way to help us make a better product for our users. So it's almost like by going to these SEO conferences or search conferences, you guys are doing some product research. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like the the product or program manager role is very focused on on customers, understanding users, and mm-hmm. and we have a we're in a very interesting position at being where we have two different set of customers, so to speak. We have the final users who are actually using the product and entering the search queries, but the webmaster community as well, and, and SEOs is uh, extremely important. Without webmasters, without people who write great content, publish great content on the internet, there would be no point in having a search engine. Um, so for us, it's extremely important to interact with uh, both sets of these customers. Definitely, that's awesome. And is there any specific tasks? I know that 
when you spoke back at SMX East, you talked about how we could optimize our crawl efficiency as something that is helpful to Bing and is really useful. Is there anything else like that that you can think of that at the end of the day makes both our websites better as well as being a better search engine? Yeah, and, and for a lot of people, it, it, it will be just making sure the basics are working. Um, in terms of crawling, mm-hmm. indexing, a lot of the technical SEO is not very different for Google and Bing. But what a lot of people don't realize is uh, sometimes they just allowed Google to crawl everything and Bing gets a diesel all. And um, if you're a, a, an SEO or webmaster or like a, a content creator and you complain that you feel you're too dependent on Google to get your search traffic, but at the same time, you're blocking all the other crawlers, all the other search engines from uh, indexing your website. Yep. Uh, well, you're, you're never going to get away from that situation. And a lot of people don't realize these are like two very related points. So make sure the basics are working for Bing in the same way they're working for Google is definitely the number one thing for most people. I love that point. Think of Bing. Remember Bing. That's right. <laughs> you obviously can't see me right now, but I'm wearing a Bing sweatshirt today. So really repping, repping Bing. I, I, I don't. Like, there is only one person on this podcast wearing a Bing swag. And like that. <laughs> That's not true. I have a local branded jacket that has a Bing logo on the shoulder. <laughs> nice, nice. So I'm the only one that not for wearing Bing. That's interesting. That's awesome. So you reminded me of a tweet that you had recently where you asked people in the search community what they're interested in hearing, whether it was about JavaScript, machine learning, or um, search history right? And the top one was JavaScript. Why do you think that the search community is so fascinated with JavaScript? Well, I think there is a a legitimate concern from the community that as their websites are getting more and more complicated, the search engines are not going to represent them in their index in in the best Mm -hmm. way. Um, There is a lot of misunderstanding around what what are the best practices for JavaScript? What are the things we should do, the things we shouldn't do? Uh, maybe in, in the search engine side, there was some miscommunication in terms of we support JavaScript, we don't support JavaScript. It's much more nuanced mm-hmm. than just saying, oh, yeah, of course we support JavaScript. Yep. At, at Bing, we, we can claim we support JavaScript in the sense we our crawler is able to download those kind of resources, render mm-hmm. the pages for most frameworks. Uh, but there is also a reality. It's a very process intensive um, definitely traditionally intensive process so you you have fairly little control in what search engines are going to index on your site with javascript compared to a regular html and i understand that can cause quite some nervousness in the seo community so that's probably why there is a lot of questions and concern around that yeah so like a lot of anxiety combined with probably like you said some different formats of information, I know that one of the things that we've seen is that for certain sites, JavaScript, totally fine. But then you'll go, you'll have another site experience where they'll switch over to a very JavaScript heavy experience and their traffic will suffer from it. So I think that lack of consistency in terms of experience is so fascinating. And I think it's something that makes people really anxious because they don't want to have that type of trend in their performance as well. So thank you for sharing that. So are you going to actually write a piece on that? Uh, I think the piece will be on that. 
uh, ML and guidelines, actually. Uh, and one of the reasons is uh, Google came recently with a very good article. I think it was Martin Split who wrote about RenderTron and techniques to uh, to yep. make it easier for uh, websites to be indexed when they are using JavaScript. I think there is a, a lot of literature that is already being written on JavaScript. So uh, I felt that even though it was a fairly close, I think it was 45-41%, so it was close enough that I felt there was not enough written around ML and guidelines, and that's probably why I'm going to write about that next. Yeah, I was about to say that's the good news about like best practices for JavaScript is that what you can do to make sure search engines can understand your content is to serve a pre-rendered or HTML snapshot version and, and it goes for both like Google and Bing. So once again, like what you do for one search engine is not different than what you would do to optimize for another search engine. So optimization of time. <laughs> optimization of time. I love it. <laughs> and I love the idea of basically endorsing content that Google has already done saying, this is fine. It works similar for Bing. Let's focus on what we need to with machine learning, which brings up the talk that you had at Tech SEO Boost, which was so fascinating as well. And I loved your little quip where you said that Bing was the first to have to be powered by a neural net. That's so exciting and so interesting. Yeah, that, that's that's a little known fact. And that, that's why uh, Christian and I insisted that uh, we we kind of hammer it. Like and at every conference now, we say it like Bing was the first one. Um, interestingly, these were like very rudimentary neural nets at the time, like um, like if, if your listeners are familiar with deep learning, it wasn't really deep in, in any way. It was only one hidden layer, and it was yeah, it was it was very simple. But it shows that it, it's something that's been top of mind uh, at Microsoft Research and at MSN Search, Live Search, uh, now being for quite a while. We believe the best way to scale search is to uh, use machine learning to make the machine learn about uh, what are the best results to be returned for a query, and that's why we take an approach that may be slightly different from what other major search engines uh, are taking. I love that. It's like the most shallow deep learning that you have. <laughs> I'm just kidding, of course. <laughs> That's right. It, it changed quite a bit. That was thir 13 years ago. So <laughs> you're like, it was deep for 13 years ago. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and you mentioned too, they had like a ton of features over like 500 features that were engineered into it, which I mean, it's one of the very challenging thing because that has to probably be custom done. Yeah, and, and honestly, I don't, I don't know exactly how they did it back in uh, uh, 2005. Uh, but f feature engineering is definitely a, a big challenge, and that that's why a lot of the discussions around ranking factors sounds a bit funny, especially for us at, at Bing, because. Some of the features are like derivatives of like several other features. You combine things. It, it's it's a very our engineers take it really as a machine learning problem. Mm -hmm. So they create new features that don't necessarily make a lot of sense for humans, but have actually a great predictive power for the for the model. And that's why like this ranking factor thing like always yeah feels a bit funny for us. Yeah, I loved how powerful your example of what a machine sees is so different from what a person sees. And in your example, you had used a stop sign where basically all you did they did was cover up a small part of it and the machine from that saw something totally different, which was a speed limit sign. And I think the idea that machines process information differently than humans process information is so interesting and so fascinating and probably something that you have to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, that, and that starts like uh, with some of the worst cases where um, we see things like that are different from what users are seeing, like case of cloaking and this kind of things. That's why like these are considered like the cardinal sins of, uh, of SEO and, uh, and search, because if, if the machine cannot even access the same content as users, like then like we lose all trust in everything you're, you're doing. 
but even like going back to JavaScript, that's that's also exactly what what the problem is with JavaScript. It's not having the guarantee that the machine is going to see all the goodness uh, you're showing to users uh, when you have a JavaScript-heavy page. So uh, creating all these features, creating all this this knowledge um, can get a bit complicated for the machine, for sure. Definitely. So what do you think is the most important part of machine learning for search professionals to understand? Because you went into so many complicated elements like Bing's Lambda Mart, vector space, which I love that. I really hope the it's the same in, in the vector space catches on in the industry. <laughs> um, and then, of course, RankNet. What do you think is really important for people who are maybe less technical or less well-versed in mathematics to understand about what you're trying to achieve with machine learning? So that, that's where I think the guidelines come really into play. Uh, if you look at the, the process of machine learning, it, it it can get pretty complicated from a technical point of view. Uh, and if, if you're not technical, that, that sounds like <laughs> a foreign language. Uh, and so what is really important to remember is it's, it's a way to generalize search algorithm that is trained with how humans would be judging the sites according to the guidelines. So the way we train our machine learning model, we have a subset of queries and URLs, and we send judges to these websites, and we ask them to rate them according to the search quality guidelines. And that makes our training set, and we hold a little bit of this data as like validation and test set. And then that's where you train your machine learning algorithm. You want your algorithm to perform really great on this small subset of queries and URLs that have been judged uh, by humans. Mm -hmm. And then you validate with other metrics that it generalize pretty well to the thousands times more queries and URLs uh, we see in the wild. So in the end, thinking, would my site, according to the guidelines, get a perfect or excellent or good rating Mm-hmm. It's probably a good way to think about it. Nice. I love the idea of using humans as almost, like you said, training all of that data so that you can then iterate on that process to make it more efficient and better in the end. There's like something very beautiful in that. Hopefully one day it'll be all machines, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I would trust machines to do 100% of the work. One, one I, I like my job. I don't want the machine to take it. Um, <laughs> and and, and in, in, in the end, we, we, build, we build all of this for people. So like yeah. keeping people involved in the process, keeping the machine honest, looking whether the results make sense, not just like if the metric looks good, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And for the way, you talked about trust, trust towards a, a website. Uh, I, I remember from, from experience that Bing is, is pretty aggressive uh, with like spam or like a big, big red flags about websites. Like a few years ago, uh, I remember a website that uh, we were launching, like a, it was a .info. And just for that reason, it could not be indexed uh, right away. Can, can you tell us more about like maybe some, some again, big red flags that Bing has in the system that say, hey, that website, most likely not a good one. So like in the same way that I, I don't think there is any like silver bullet in terms of good ranking factors. When you go outside of the of the worst offenders like cloaking, I'm not sure if there is anything where we would ban outright a website. I think what, what happens at Bing compared to other search engines is we, we tend to see uh, violations of our webmaster guidelines as mostly voluntary. I, 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 when I hear Philly Visa, and I know he doesn't represent Google anymore, but he talks about these uh, manual penalties and he says, uh, these are this is mostly educational and uh, if people fix their issues, we remove the penalty and everything is great. and, and uh, on our side, we take probably what I would call a more punitive approach, where if 
if you try to cheat the system, uh, you're going to have a penalty that is going to last for a while because we don't want you to cheat the system again. And we've seen before, if we remove the penalty, the site tends to just do the same things again. Um, so that that's why, like when you say we are harsher on spam, I think the our idea of spam is fairly similar, but the way we approach it is is, is a bit different, maybe more in a punitive way and making sure like people who abide by the rules actually are ranked higher in the results. That makes sense. It brings back this idea of the fact that, you know, your site is a relationship between your experience your users, and then also search engines as well, because there's almost like this implicit trust that's formed. And you mentioned the word trust, of course. I know that with Google, this whole idea of expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness is becoming more and more important or popping up a little bit more. But I think it's it's so interesting and fascinating that you know, you're using that as a standard, almost as if it's an actual relationship. Well, yeah, and, and it, it, it comes from the fact that our, our users really trust us to serve the best and most authoritative results, and especially for queries, like like the tax season is picking up and uh, people want to make sure that they're not giving their social security number and all of their yeah. financial information to scammers. And um, a lot of people will trust whatever comes at the first positions mm-hmm. uh, on Bing. Um, and if, if they click on the first link, like they, they cannot even imagine, most of them actually cannot even imagine we would send them to a scam or anything like that. So it, it is a huge responsibility for us. That's why we take it extremely seriously because when, when we fail, it has real life consequences for these people. Definitely. And do you think, oh, I know that one of your articles that you mentioned that you were thinking about writing was the history of search, which I don't understand why it was the least popular because I feel like to hear from your perspective of the history of search would be so incredibly fascinating because I, I felt that, and I don't know if you have felt this, this as well, that as time has gone on, people have gravitated more towards that first result. Whereas in the past, I mean, when I was younger, I just remember almost being told to more critically evaluate all of the results that were coming through. And then now it's like, oh, just click on the first one. Whatever that says is fine, which probably shifts more responsibility onto you as the search engine and your team. Yeah. Yes. And um, so I, th- th- there are two aspects to this. Uh, if from one sense, it, it, it makes it mm-hmm. slightly easier because it, if, if it puts more weight on the number one, number two, number three results, um, that means also like the weight of responsibility is a bit lower for return things that are not necessarily the best results at number nine, number ten. Um, and for some queries, like if, if you if you type something like Facebook login, there is an excellent number one result I can think of, and not much more at two, three, four, five <laughs> uh, that I think would fulfill the user intent. So to some extent, it makes it a bit easier for this category of very navigational, like ex- very explicit intent queries. But on, on, on the other hand, you're, you're right that it's it's definitely changed. And if you look at the past 20 years, search used to be more of an information retrieval problem. So really the idea of like assuming this is, this is a library of all the knowledge in the world, uh, how can I find the 10 best pieces of information or the 10 best books in the library to match this, this query. And um, slowly we've evolved towards more like task completion, yes. uh, actual like transactional intent, and um, also more and more money got involved. And uh, so that's where you get spam and, and people who are um, a bit too aggressive on SEO. And that that's probably the main thing that changed like search, like the idea that you get a lot of people who would love to be at number one and who are going to do whatever it takes to be at number one. 
and uh, so it, you, it's not more it's not just an information retrieval problem anymore it's, it's becoming a real full-fledged product where a lot of these dimensions relevance quality context come uh, all into place yeah when you have a lot of money on the line i can imagine there's a lot of consequences that could happen and of course we've heard recently about so many different breakouts of data and data leakage issues so super fascinating so thank you for sharing that with us <laughs> Okay. Do you have any questions, Max? Yeah, sure. Since maybe you're in Seattle and I heard there's a big e-commerce company in Seattle. Um, if you can tell her, maybe it might be a, a little bit outside of like the, the internal like Bing system, but like what for, for you makes like a, a great like e-commerce experience, like uh, features on the website that um, yeah. user uh, expect maybe and that then, and yes, maybe that Bing will reward without like giving away ranking factors. That's not really my question, but something that uh, you guys are looking for because users are looking for it. Yeah, when it comes to the big e-commerce company in Seattle, it it makes our life a bit easier because one of the the way we frame it here, if you look at all the e-commerce websites on the internet, one question we ask ourselves is, would we give our credit card number to that website? And so when it comes to our neighbor in Seattle, sure, like I think anyone in the world will feel confident that if they give them their credit card number is going to be taken care of with uh, the greatest care and they're not going to get uh, unwanted charges. And on the other hand, there are many websites on the internet where like never ever I would even give like four digits of my credit card. Them. And and when when you look at these sites, this is really the question you need to ask yourself: like, would I give them my credit card number? Uh, and how it works in, in the user's mind is like, what are the trust factors in, in, in on this website? Is does it look professional? Does it have an actual contact uh, address that you can look up somewhere? Um, I know that. Google in their guidelines has the BBB rating, and I don't think they use it as a ranking factor. We're certainly not using it as a ranking factor. But the idea that someone else is vouching for you it is something that you need to take into account if, if you have an e-commerce website. From a trust point of view, all, all of these things are probably the number one thing. You want to make sure users are willing to do business with you, are willing to give you their credit card number, and that's what we're looking for uh, at the end, user satisfaction. I love that you said that because just from a design standpoint, it's today it's with frameworks and built-in features and uh, even Bootstrap and all those like uh, CSS and HTML like frameworks that you can find out there. It is pretty easy to make Scam look really good and really professional. So I'm I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that it's not just about that. A website can can look good and be still a scam, and hopefully we won't see it popping up in any search search results. Definitely. Just it sounds like it all comes back to trustworthiness. So kind of really exciting to hear that. Okay. All right. I'm going to go back to one of your tweets. In your tweet, you mentioned that you review user feedback and that you set aside a specific time to review that, which is really exciting because I feel like I've really felt a lot of positive energy coming from the Bing team in terms of almost doing a listening tour and trying to figure out what's going on in the space and how can we then learn and react from that. So how's your time that you've spent reviewing user feedback ever resulted in a new project? Yeah, that, that's uh, that's definitely super important to look at feedback. I, that's a personal belief I have that as products or program managers, it, it's it's an essential part of our job. And I, I don't know if you can do a good product manager work without listening to your customers and users and, and partners. I can think of two examples where it's been extremely useful. And, and one, it was a very visible feedback. If you remember last spring, I think Yoast uh, posted something about Bing crawling too much. 
and they have a lot of data probably from uh, from their their plugin and, and they are very well informed on, on, on these problems and um, we took the feedback very seriously and and we, we heard before from other people that um, Bing tends to crawl a bit too much compared to Google and that's something we definitely started to look at very closely and that's what resulted uh, last week I believe uh, in in this new uh, indexing API we announced at SMX West, as well as the integration with the Yoast plugin um, and my Yoast, which was announced at their conference last week. So this is a very, a very concrete case where the feedback we've been listening to and we've been aggregating, compounded with someone very visible and very vocal <laughs> who voiced the same feedback, uh, resulted in something extremely concrete that we announced in the past couple of weeks. Something that is a, a, a bit fuzzier probably is around spam and all the, the the all the times we are failing our users, so to speak. And I, I take the feedback extremely seriously. And I, when I hear several different people tell me, hey, if I type a query for this domain, like a, like the name of a drug or this kind of things, and I really see bad results, um, this informs where we're going to invest our resources. And if, if I hear that a certain area is getting more and more spam, or if uh, some very technical people come to me and say, hey, I noticed that this category of site putting these keywords in this way or whatever is ranking higher than they used to. This is this is just all goodness. So I invite all the listeners, if, if you have any feedback uh, you want to, to give to us, um, you can tweet at me directly on Twitter or you can use the feedback form on Bing uh, on the uh, upper right menu. And we, we take it extremely seriously. That's awesome. It's almost like keeping one ear to the ground just to make sure that everything is going well, like a pulse, which is awesome. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, and in in the end, we do it for our users. So uh, like we have a lot of ways to to scale our understanding of user satisfaction with metrics and numbers, Uh, but there's nothing like um, qualitative feedback, like actual people. Um, I have a personal belief that if you talk to 10 users and you listen to their actual verbatim feedback, you learn so much more than just looking at a number, even if the number covers 1 million or 10 million users. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear, though, that that qualitative feedback is so valuable. Because I think a lot of times when we think about data and we think about the massive amounts of information that like even we receive on the webmaster end, I mean, I can only imagine how much you guys receive on, on your end, but we usually think about, oh, quantitative, quantitative, quantitative. But the value of qualitative data is so interesting and, and how it can give you a totally different perspective. So thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> I'd like to go back on um, the fact that there's not a lot of differences in uh, what webmasters, technical SEOs, SEO can do to optimize for uh, search engines, like mm-hmm. at least being in, in Google. But there was one that I can think of uh, in terms of you know those technical tags that we implement and things that we do, hreflang tags for uh, in, international SEO. And uh, we, we all know that hreflang tags, they, they do work for Google most of the time, but um, it could be an extremely complicated setup and implementation, really hard to manage. Bing has not uh, been on board with like a, a tag. Can you tell us a little bit about like how, how you guys like really handle that, not duplicate content, but variations, international variations, and how you uh, detect like uh, the targeted audience, basically for those websites that are multiple like region and languages to target? So I'm going to give you a very disappointing answer. I'm not very familiar with the Etrofling tag uh, treatment at Bing. So uh, instead of 
um, <laughs> giving an answer that I, I think would be necessarily inaccurate. I, I, I just I'll just pass on on extra flang. Uh, what I can tell you is. Um, if you have a website, independently of Efreshlang, if you have a website like, let's say, blah.com and in English, uh, blah.fr um, in French, and if it is the same company, and like we, we have some ways to detect that this is not duplicate content, that this is actually like two different uh, languages. Uh, same thing if you have like slash en slash fr um, on, a, on a given website. But in terms of Efreshlang, I, I just don't know. So I. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, no, you're good. Yeah, I mean, as far as we know, like officially being being do, does not support a Treflang tag. And again, that's not something that I'm really surprised at because it's a, it's a very complex implementation. I even heard people at Google that have been working on creating those tags that they are not extremely satisfied with the way it turned out. It turned out to be more complicated uh, than they wanted it to be. Well, what, what, what I can tell you is it, it's already complicated enough when you have only one language and, and two different websites and you want to do just a simple redirect from one to the other or simple canonical. And sometimes when I look at the presentations from, uh, from other SEOs in, uh, in, in conferences and they show this, this super complicated graph where you have like four websites all canonicalizing to one another with the HREF lang in like four different languages, like it, it, it just sounds like an extremely hard problem. So I, I, I'm not surprised that some people at Google say, hey, it, it, it is hard. We, we don't get it right all the time. Yeah, for sure. And that reminded me just of concept of different words, going back to the question of vectors. So you talked about in your tech SEO boost, this idea that when you associate words as vectors, it ends up being more efficient. Why vectors? And I'm mostly curious because I'm in a Calc 2 class and we literally just learned about how to calculate the distance between two vectors. So I loved when you muttered under your breath, you were like, well, you can just use the cosine of the angle. <laughs> I was like, oh, you totally can. <laughs> I was like, I can find you the formula for that. But, um, but I was curious about what is it about vectors? And for people who are less technical with math, vector is almost like just a direction or an arrow with a line. So if you look at Frederic's presentation, you can get that type of visual or just Google word vectors. But why are word vectors so useful? So, so in, uh, in in summary, like the, the the key concept here is what we call embeddings, and the the idea is that you get I don't know maybe one hundred thousand words, like a million words in in a, in a language, and and you want to mm -hmm. find similarities between the words. So the way the way we do that is we convert these words into a series of numbers and like depending on what exact implementation we have let's say 100 numbers that are going to represent what um, this this word means and you you train your model so that words that mean roughly the same thing or that are similar have numbers that are close to each other and so that that's a nice way to essentially compact the knowledge in your dictionary um, into a simple representation of 100 numbers and so all the all these numbers represent direction uh, different direction in um, in a multi-dimensional space so if you imagine like in the real world we have three dimensions there are like three numbers like like up like left mm -hmm. right and like the like the depth uh, so to speak like up upright the depth uh, in in this world it's like 100 different dimensions and so we we try to find the similarities and in the end you mentioned like we measured the, the distance essentially between two different words and so if you have something like let's say apple and orange these are like fairly different objects the words are, are completely different 
but these are fruits. So you, the, the concepts are still like relatively similar. So we expect these uh, words to be relatively close in, in the space. And the reason why it's extremely useful for search and, and SEO in, in general is uh, it, it just gets you away from, from this idea that um, uh-huh. it, it, you need to use synonyms or um, you, you need to uh, make sure that you cover like 10 different variations of uh, the, the same concept. Uh, the hope here is that the machine is going to understand that um, if you are a, a fruit distributor, you don't need like apples-bestdistributor.com, orange-bestdistributor.com, pear-bestdistributor.com. We understand you're a fruit distributor. All these things like make sense to, to the machine. So that, that's why it's extremely exciting for us. Uh, as a development. I love that you say that. I, I always use the, uh, the superhero example, like uh, uh, telling people that, yes, if, if you do want to rank like about Superman, then it might be good that your website talk about like Batman or Spider-Man. And again, as you just mentioned about the fruits, there are different words, but they are related because they are like superhero name and that will make the website uh, more relevant for a particular topic and not just using synonym or like clock ant or something like that and need to expand to the context of what the topic is actually about. Yeah, and it's almost like a lot of people in the industry I've noticed over the last probably two years have been talking about this idea of entity optimization versus focusing on keywords, but focusing on that overall being known for something, essentially. Yeah, and that's very interesting. We, we've been working on entities for quite a while at Bing, and uh, there, there was a time like be- before uh, embeddings and vectors and, and this uh, concept of similarities really caught on where uh, th- this was a bit m- much more <laughs> kind of handcrafted, so to speak. And so um, you, you would have like this very strict relationship where like an entity links to another mm-hmm. with like, like for example, Microsoft is a company. So Microsoft, the type was really a field in the entity is company. And then is CEO is like Satya and like that would be like a related person. And then the relationship with the fields like what is the relation? Oh, it is a manager. Mm-hmm. And like, and uh, what what is kind of magical with these vectors and embeddings is all these relationships just become completely natural. You don't need someone to uh, to tell you exactly what what is the relationship between Microsoft and uh, and, and Satya. And uh, what what is extremely interesting if you look at the literature, and that that is probably one of the most fascinating properties of these vectors is if you uh, the the distance between Microsoft and Satya Nadella in the vector space is the same as the distance between uh, Google and Sundar Pichai. And so like, if, if you look <laughs> and you just draw like essentially a triangle between Microsoft, Google, and Sundar Pichai, then you can extremely easily find that Satya has the same relationship with Microsoft as Sundar has the relationship with Google. And that, that, I find that extremely fascinating and that just makes makes entity relationships so much more powerful because you can just learn them in the wild instead of having to, to handcraft them uh, over time. That's so mind-blowing. And when I'm visualizing this, I don't know if anybody's seen the graph of word to vec but basically it sounds like exactly what you're talking about, which it probably stands for word to vector yep. um, But basically it's like that three-dimensional graph of words. So you like you're talking about, you could almost see the clusters of information of things that are like similar and related together as almost like a group of things that are in one area, which is kind of cool to think about. But that's actually, it's even more mind-blowing that like that relationship, the distance is exactly similar. That's crazy. Yeah. Th- Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think in their example, they used uh, man, woman, king, queen. 
if I remember correctly. And uh, yeah, that's exactly what I had in mind. So I, I think if, you, if you're if you're in technical SEO, reading the work to back paper, or like in general, like this foundational papers on word embeddings is, is just a must. That's so brilliant and so fascinating too. I really do hope the, you know, it's, it's pretty much the same in the vector space. Like, no, totally different in the space. <laughs> I really do hope that catches on. I think it, it's kind of like interesting to think about. I mean, it basically just, if you were, when you said something like that, I'd infer that like, it's all about relevancy, but I just think it's kind of like another funny way to say that. I think SEOs tend to find funny ways to say things. <laughs> um, also, I do want to give you a shout out. Thank, I thought it was really cool that you mentioned Karen Jones in your speech. I know that she recently passed away, but really cool to have women of science mentioned and especially lauded for their accomplishments. So thank you for that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and she is really one of the most important uh, persons in uh, in the field of information retrieval, which is like the precursor to search and uh, and, and SEO. And uh, if you look at her work, like like a lot of people talk about TF-IDF, so she is the mother of IDF. And um, this specific part of the formula mm-hmm. is actually one that survived the time. So if you look at for, uh, more advanced things like BM25. Uh, the TF part has been like changed quite a bit in BM25, but the IDF part is almost exactly the same. And BM25 is considered state of the art even today for information retrieval in in some sense. So um, it's it's quite incredible that her work really is still extremely relevant to the field, like forty years after she wrote the paper on IDF. Isn't that crazy? I think that isn't that like every scientist's dream that their work outlives them. So amazing. Yeah, there is uh, in the in, in a lot of conferences they they have uh, academic conferences. They have what they call the the test of time paper award, <laughs> and uh, they look at all the papers that were published ten years before. Uh, I think ten years is the canonical uh, time they, they look at, and uh, they give the award to whatever paper is still relevant or the most relevant at uh, at that time, which is fascinating. And I mean, obviously, something that we want to encourage our scientists to do is have relevant papers. You know. All right. So for the closing question, Frederic, basically, I've been asking all of the other people that have joined the podcast, what are their three golden nuggets of advice, which is essentially, what should you do from an interpersonal level, a site related level, or really just a personal development level can be anything, but just three pieces of advice that you have for our listeners. That's uh, that's a great open question. I I would say that the number one is to remember that you build things for people. Uh, we, we are an industry where we, we're builders, we build websites, we build products, we build a search engine. We all build these things for people. So this is the, the number one thing. My goal as a, a being product manager is to make sure the product I build is going to be useful to the people who use it. And the consequence for you as a webmaster or an SEO is it, it is important that the content you build is going to be useful to my users because I'm the intermediary between my users and you. So I, I want I, I want to be able to vouch for you and say, yes, I think this is a great result and uh, I happily send my users to you. So that's definitely like the, the, the number one. For, from a, a, a more technical point of view, uh, and I'm just going to reuse what I said like a, a few Oh yeah, minutes totally ago. feel free. You can totally reuse whatever. <laughs> um, definitely start looking at embeddings and similarities and how modern uh, NLP is done with deep learning. If you have a little bit of time, take the Coursera from um, um, Andrew Nguyen. 
uh, who uh, like is, is so there is uh, there is a machine learning one on one and there is the deep learning specialization which is a set of five different courses. I fi- I found it easy to take deep learning even without the machine learning knowledge. I just happened to, to do the machine learning before. Um, but this is a great course. Uh, you don't need a lot of technical math background and it's going to give you a lot of understanding uh, around deep learning. So that's that would be my advice. Like if you if you can block a little bit of time over the next few months to take this specialization, or I- even if it's not on Coursera, just like learn more about these things, uh, deep learning and how it's used in NLP. That that is the future. Uh, that is really the future. So you you get an edge just by learning about these things. Yeah, I love that. Andrew's definitely the man too. So absolutely, he he, he worked. I mean, he, he worked at the the biggest companies, like just just not Microsoft. Like we need to hire him at some point so that he does like the <laughs> the grand slam of <laughs> big companies. So he has the resume. Yeah, <laughs> when you look up his resume, it's like, man, you were very high up in Google. Then he was super high up in Baidu. So yeah, you guys totally need to hire him at Bing. So he has like everything. Yeah, Stanford, like, of course. Yeah, exactly. When when your when your uh, lowest achievement is being a professor at Stanford, like that, just like yeah. seems like. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. But yeah, his actually his class on um, machine learning is also very good on Coursera, and then I think it's a little bit better than the one that's on iTunes University because that one's basically the older class, but specifically for Stanford. But yeah, he, great great point. I'll definitely I'm gonna check out that deep learning course too now. Yeah, the, the the machine learning one is definitely a bit more technical. I, I think, and especially he had two versions. He had the one on Coursera, and he had the one on the Stanford website. Um, and I, the, would you say the iTunes one? That's probably the one uh, he had on Stanford. And the one on the Stanford website, like it, it, it was really assumed that you basically followed all the classes at Stanford before, and so you have like a lot of knowledge in linear algebra and like a lot of a lot of things uh, yes. like that. Yeah, if you don't know what partial derivatives are, it's very discouraging. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> he forces you to compute them. <laughs> uh, whereas the deep learning one is like, uh, you, you don't need that technical background. And a lot of times he says, he, he, actually in the in the videos, if you know about uh, these partial derivatives and everything, great. Here is like some reading for you. If you don't know about it, just forget about it. Like the understanding the concept is somewhat more important than being able to compute the partial derivative. Yeah, I love that idea of having to understand intuition of what you're actually trying to achieve in math. I feel like that's something that's an underappreciated art, which I thought you did a great job in your in your tech boost talk oh, as thank, well. Thank like you. saying like, well, well, here's the intuition of it, you know? <laughs> well, and, and I, I guess I tried to, to, to channel my Andrew and to take a CEO boost because he does that, he does that a lot uh, <laughs> like in his videos. And, uh, and when we talk about 100 dimension vector spaces, it can be extremely hard to just visualize or understand what it is. And so a lot of time in, in his videos, he's going to explain the intuition behind it and like why we do this yes. in a certain way. And and that, that's why it's just a great, great series of courses, not just like a, a good deep learning class. It is just like, I think, the, the reference uh, at this point to learn more about deep learning. Awesome. And I'll, I'll use my third uh, key point, maybe like to do a little bit of... Uh, of selling for Bing, <laughs> uh, in, in the sense we uh, we had uh, we we released this uh, crawl indexing API uh, very recently. Um, there is an integration with Yoast, but you don't need to use Yoast if you have a website that is running on any platform. You can still go ahead register on Bing Webmaster Tools, uh, start using the API, or even just submitting your uh, URLs 
directly there. And uh, for most websites, if you do that, you should see like definitely great improvements in terms of cr crawling and indexing. So that would be really my top recommendation. Like if, if you feel you're not crawled and indexed properly at Bing, start with that, register Bing Webmaster Tools, submit some URLs, uh, and that should solve most of your problems. Are you saying that we should not use XML sitemaps anymore? <laughs> <laughs> XML sitemaps are good, but they, they are just a list of all, like the way we see it, it's the list of all the URLs on your website. And if you have a million of them, maybe you care a lot about 10,000 of them, not, not the entire 1 million. And that's great because you can submit 10,000 10, URLs to the submit URL feature on Bing Master Tools. And these are the ones we're going to prioritize. Yeah. So we discover all million from your sitemap. But instead of letting us decide which ones are more important, we just prefer you telling us which ones are more important to you. That is amazing. Th thank you guys for putting that together and making it available. Yeah, congratulations. That's so exciting and exciting thanks. for us as well in the search community. So thanks. Well, I know you have a tight time schedule, but thank you so much for coming on our show and for educating us all on Bing and the history and, of course, some of the more technical knowledge as well. Very, very exciting and very honored to have you on the podcast. We'll definitely have to check out some of the more technical things like embeddings as well as deep learning. So thank you for that as well. It's been an honor. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. Ciao, everyone. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to SEO in the Lab. I hope it was super useful. Make sure to check out technicalseo.com backslash insights backslash podcast to get episode notes, transcripts, and some bonus content. Also, if you have any questions or feedback, reach out at seointhelab at merkelinc.com. You can also catch me on Twitter at Alexis K. Sanders. Thank you so much, Hanshen, for intro and outro music. Until next time, this is Alexis signing off. Ciao.